This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today on episode three of season three. Farmers that have grown chickpea with flax say that they don't see as much ascochyta in their fields. They don't need to spray as often. So they see it as a really important disease management tool. And so I wanted to do the small plot work to see if we can ideally try to figure out why. Why does it work? Dr. Claire Keene joins us to talk about intercropping and incorporating pulses into an organic rotation. At the time of our interview, Claire was the Extension Specialist in Cropping Systems at the Williston Research Extension Center, where she supported farmers directly, as well as conducted research and extension outreach with county agents and other stakeholders. Since that time, her title has changed to Assistant Professor and Agronomist at North Dakota State University, but her research interests remain in crop rotation, weed management, cover crops, soil health, organic agriculture, and perennial forages. We're going to talk about that intercropping work that you just heard Claire reference and some of her efforts to help farmers that want to transition to organic in the state. Claire does a great job of blending both the agronomic and the economic considerations in this episode. To kick things off, I asked Claire how she goes about choosing her areas of focus with such a broad array of interests. Definitely ideas from farmers, I'd say, is one of my biggest inspirations. So the work I've done with saline seep reclamation, that's a pretty big issue here. And just people calling me, looking for recommendations on what to plant. It certainly occurred to me, well, that's something I should get involved in. I should do a trial and know more about it. So certainly farmer input's very important. With the intercropping thing, I didn't actually have any farmers say, I want to know more about intercropping. Can you look into it? But it was something I became aware of going to some field days, talking to some farmers, and it was a practice that some people had heard about. There's a person named Derek Axton up in Saskatchewan who's been doing intercropping quite successfully for a little while and is getting some notoriety. And so I just thought it was a practice that seemed to have a lot of potential and I wanted to know more about it and get more experience with it myself. Now, I think most of you probably have the right image in mind when you hear the word intercropping, but for the sake of making sure everyone's on the same page, we're talking about growing two different crops that are planted in the same place and harvested at the same time. We've discussed it on a few episodes in the past, including episode 10 of season one with Lana Shaw, episode six of season two with Tony Wagner, and in a special intercropping bonus episode, we'll link to all three of those in the show notes. For Claire, there was one intercrop combination in particular that really caught her interest. So the intercrop combination that really caught my attention was chickpea and flax. We do have a fair number of chickpea acres out here in northwest North Dakota, northeastern Montana. And the Achilles heel of chickpeas is ascochyta blight, which is a foliar fungal pathogen that can be really devastating if the environmental conditions are right and it's in a field. It can just spread very quickly. It can kill plants and it can drastically reduce yields. And so in a year, again, with favorable environmental conditions for it, farmers can do quite a lot of fungicide applications. Two and three is common, and in a bad year, four or five. And with a product cost of something like $20 an acre, if not more, depending on the fungicides used, that's a tremendous input cost for chickpeas. And so if we can reduce the need for fungicide use, reduce the number of fungicide applications, that's probably the fastest way to reduce chickpea cost of production or at least that I'm aware of. And so the farmers that have grown chickpea with flax uh, say that they, they don't see as much ascochyta in their fields. They don't need to spray as often. So they see it as a really important disease management tool. And so I wanted to do the small plot work looking at that at kind of the finer scale to see if we can replicate that and then 
ideally try to figure out why. Why does it work? So you're probably wondering, what were the results of this research? Well, we won't keep you waiting all episode to find out. Claire says the results of these early trials have been pretty encouraging. So I have two years of small plot intercropping data that I've been working with. And in 2018, in a year with good moisture, we had good success both with lower rates of flax. So I was manipulating the seeding rate of flax with a constant rate of chickpea. And so at 5, 10, and 15 pounds of flax per acre with the chickpea, I didn't reduce chickpea yield, but I was seeing at least a small impact in reducing ascochyta blight incidence and severity. However, at the high rates of flax, so 20 pounds per acre and 40 pounds per acre, I did reduce that chickpea yield. In 2020, so we had a very severe drought out here last year, and in a dry year, all the rates of flax planted with the chickpea did reduce uh, the chickpea yield. So certainly in a dry year, it looks like that flax can be a little bit more competitive and compete with the chickpea better. But another piece of it, so not only the ASCO kite blight control is sort of my primary interest, a secondary one is I've seen that the flax does increase chickpea dry down. So chickpea is a very indeterminate crop that'll just keep producing new green leaves and flowers as long into the growing season as we have moisture available and we don't freeze. Out here in western North Dakota, we're usually not too wet um, at the end of August or into September, but in the years that we are, it makes chickpea dry down quite challenging because then a grower is trying to decide when to desiccate it. And so what I've seen with those higher rates of flax, that helps shut the chickpea down earlier and make a field mature more evenly and more quickly. So certainly some intriguing benefits to a system like this. But like with every aspect of farming, the devil is in the details. And harvesting two crops at once does introduce another level of complexity tend to set the combine as you would for chickpea. And if you have a good chickpea yield, those hard round chickpeas help to thresh out the flax bowls. I certainly haven't gotten the cleanest, prettiest sample with our small plot combine, but it's certainly at a point that we can then run it over a clipper cleaner in the lab and, and get it pretty clean and, and well separated. The farmers that are doing this on a large scale some are okay with putting the chickpea and the flax together in the bin if they're sufficiently dry, whereas others have set themselves up to separate them on the fly. So you'd need either a bin or a truck and then separate bins or trucks and then some kind of auger system and then a way to separate it. You can certainly do a very crude separation, which is something like a quick clean or a screen cleaner. Uh, that works when you have the seeds of really different size. Um, you don't really need high-tech equipment to do the separation. Some people have gotten a little bit fancier with some of the more advanced air cleaning system where you, you know, by density, you set fans at different strengths so that you can separate heavier seed from lighter seed in just one pass through. Now, if you've been a regular listener of this podcast, you might remember last season, episode six, when Tony Wagner was talking about his idea to use flax intercropped with peas to help them sort of climb up off the ground. And Claire has also seen this work with canola and peas. The chickpea is a plant that doesn't really climb, but I do have a coworker who's looking at canola and pea grown together, and the pea does tend to trellis, uh, we say, up that canola and support it and keep it off the ground. And he's also seen an increase in the lowest pod height from the ground, which is very helpful with peas because one of the issues harvesting them is 
depending on the year, you can be running your combine very close to the ground, which is stressful, certainly for the driver, because you're very concerned about picking up rocks, but also damaging your cutter bar potentially. So getting those peas up off the ground higher is very helpful, again, from that harvest management standpoint. So that could potentially be another agronomic benefit to some of these intercrop combinations. But what about the economics of all this? What is a farmer potentially giving up and gaining in order to grow two crops at once? I'd say it kind of depends on the crop and the year. So in an instance where you've saved one or two fungicide applications, yes, it's it's probably going to break even or do a little better. However, depending on your setup, the time invested in cleaning and separation can also be another added cost. And so I have heard from some growers, they feel like they're satisfied with the agronomic benefits they're seeing in the field, but whether or not that's going to compensate for the time spent cleaning just depends on their setup. For some, it works very well, especially if they own that equipment. But if they're going to have to take that grain somewhere or get a mobile grain cleaner in to do that separation for them, then economically it may not make sense if they're paying someone, you know, some number of cents per bushel to do the cleaning. So we've heard about the potential benefits of intercropping like disease suppression, dry down, and harvestability in some cases. As with everything, it's going to be very dependent on your specific situation. But Claire does see potential with chickpea flax and canola pea intercrop combinations specifically. Another area of potential economic and agronomic opportunity that she's been working on is in organic agriculture. And that's what we'll shift our focus to next. In North Dakota, there is actually a fair number of organic farmers. There aren't many of them up in the northwest corner of the state, though. They're mostly in kind of central, uh, south-central, southeast North Dakota. But there's there's definitely potential for organic crops in North Dakota. Primary crops aren't that different from what conventional growers are doing. Spring wheat and durum are big. Also pea and lentil. Other small grains, such as barley, oats, maybe rye. So the crop mix doesn't tend to be all that different, but then the management certainly changes with the fertility sources, uh, weed control, and how an organic farmer manages that in their system. If you've ever thought about transitioning some land into certified organic, Claire has some really great tips for you here today. But first, she says it's helpful to have a really clear reason for wanting to make this commitment in the first place. I think a great place to start is just taking a minute to ask why. Uh, why do you want to transition to organic and what are your goals? Certainly capturing the price premium of organic crops is a really big incentive for a lot of people. But I also just encourage farmers to think about, are there other things that you're looking for? Is it reducing your exposure to pesticides, your family's exposures to pesticides? Are you thinking about input costs and finding ways to make your system a little more closed where you're not as reliant on external inputs? Is it access to specific markets that you're trying to get to? Are there other you know, management concerns you have that you feel organic can address for you? And I just think that that's a really good place to start because while it's easy to start from that price premium standpoint, the transition involves three years of organic management when you're not able to get that price premium until you're certified. So that's certainly a very big commitment and definitely a financial barrier to transition for a lot of folks. But then it's also just thinking about you know, your approach to farming and is it going to be a good fit with organic management? Some great news for a lot of you. Claire says the biggest tool and the foundation of organic farming systems is something most pulse crop farmers are already pretty familiar with, crop rotation. 
So one thing that I think is really foundational to organic crop management is a crop rotation. It doesn't necessarily have to be a fixed rotation that never changes, but doing crops in certain sequences is really important in organic so that you set yourself up for good fertility for the crops that need a lot of nitrogen, for the weed control that you need in crops that aren't as competitive. In organic, really, the biggest tool that you have is crop rotation. Yes, tillage is also a part of it, but crop rotation is really, in my mind, the foundation of where you get your fertility, of how you manage your weeds, of how you manage diseases and insect pests as well. It's how you set yourself up for successful organic cropping. And so I think that organic management tends to be a better fit for people who are able to think about maybe a little bit longer term and think about how a rotation would fit into marketing over time. And just being able to think through what you're doing, not only this year, but why you're doing it and what it's setting you up for next year. Whereas you know, one of the beauties certainly of a conventional system is that you can be a lot more reactive and, you know, let's say the, the price of soybeans goes up quite a bit. You might be able to just decide to plant soybeans. So crop rotation is a really important tool in organic management. And someone who already grows a diversity of crops may be a good fit for organic because that gives you the option of the crops you can grow that help build soil fertility and those that that use it and need more of it, those that are weed competitive and those that aren't. And in, in my experiences, successful organic farmers are good at sequencing their crops in ways that help them meet those management needs that they have, certainly providing enough nutrients to crops, but then also maintaining the weed and insect and disease control that they need. But, you know, something then that, that would be a downside is you may not have quite the flexibility to respond to a change in market as a conventional farmer. Certainly, a conventional farmer could have the opportunity to take advantage of, say, a spike in soybean prices or corn prices or wheat prices and just decide to plant that again next year, perhaps without much concern of what was in that field the previous year. And an organic farmer, sometimes they're able to do that, but really that tends to be a very difficult way to manage organically, to be quite that reactive rather than relying on a crop rotation, again, to provide those services that in conventional you're able to apply more fertilizer or to use, say, a fungicide or an insecticide should the need arise during the season. Building this resiliency through crop rotation is important for both conventional and organic growers. So this is probably not a surprise to you, especially if you've listened to the past two episodes of this podcast. One reason I think it comes up so much on this show is because pulse crops are such a valuable addition to these rotations. Sure. I do think pulse crops are a good fit in organic rotations, especially in, say, more semi-arid climates, because growing things like pea or lentil or even chickpea potentially will help build that soil fertility and add nitrogen to the soil and set you up for a small grain, usually afterwards, something that needs a bit more nitrogen. So pulse crops are a good fit in organic systems in that way. And then also, they're a good fit because they don't need that nitrogen, not only setting up a subsequent crop, but they can also be a good crop to start with if, for example, someone's, say, breaking out an old grass pasture to go into organic production. Peas would be a good crop to start with because the likelihood of that old grass stand tying up free nitrogen in the soil as it decomposes is very high. So going in with a legume in that first case is... In my opinion, often, not always, but often a good choice because you're not setting yourself up for nitrogen deficiency if you're to, say, try to start with something like a spring wheat. 
Earlier, you heard Claire talk about how strategies like intercropping could help with some disease management. But I know one concern many pulse farmers have with organic is weed control. Most pulses aren't known for being overly weed competitive. So how do organic producers deal with that? So it's really important to get good weed control in a field before doing organic pulses, especially I'd say lentil and chickpea. Those are probably the least forgiving. They're just such small plants. They may not canopy given the year. So going into a clean field for those is very important. So depending on your rotation, doing something like a good small grain at a heavy seeding rate ahead of those might be a good option. So something like a barley or an oat that are quick emerging, a lot of leaf area, you can plant them at a higher seeding rate to really outcompete weeds. That can be a good strategy. Also, if in that organic small grain preceding the pulse, if say you do have some weed escapes, swathing is a harvest method that's also a good weed control method. It doesn't always line up, but in many years, if you're able to swath that small grain before, say the kochia and the Russian thistle and the prickly lettuce or whatever goes to seed, you know, it's essentially a mowing. You're getting in a mowing for weed control in the middle of a grain crop. You just happen to be doing it when that crop is ripe. So you swath it, lay down those weeds, pick up your your grain to harvest it. And then if you've, you know, truncated the the seed production of those weeds, you're then setting yourself up for going into a cleaner field the next year. And so that's a good strategy. Also tillage. So most organic farmers do rely on tillage as part of their weed control. And some farmers will even do a summer fallow, depending on where they are prior to a pulse crop. So maybe growing uh, spring wheat with sweet clover in the first year. So you underseed the sweet clover with the spring wheat, harvest the spring wheat, the sweet clover will keep going. And then the spring of the second year, you might harvest that sweet clover for a forage or plow it down. So that'd be the green manure crop. And then if you're doing that in, say, June sometime, early to mid-June, you then have that window of summer to manage. You could try a cover crop in there, but depending on moisture, that may not be a good strategy. But some farmers would be doing a few tillage passes. Yes, it's keeping the ground open. Certainly erosion can be a concern depending on where you are. But doing that summer fallow, and then the next spring, you're set up to plant your lentil or your pea early. And hopefully that summer fallow period has allowed multiple flushes of weeds to be taken out of the system. Claire's talked a little bit about tillage, and it's one of those trade-offs that organic farmers have to consider while they're trying to maintain their standards, but also build healthier soil. With this goal in mind, Claire likes to sort of step back and look at this overall as strategically managing landscapes. The concern about erosion is real. Certainly out here uh, where we get a lot of wind, wind erosion is our major issue. If you're in a wetter area, water erosion is really serious. So where I start the conversation with concerns around erosion and soil health and organic is I think we need to think strategically about how we manage our landscapes. And so what I mean by that is how how are your fields oriented? What opportunities do you have to prevent erosion with your field layout? Do you have uh, good tree rows? Do you have windbreaks? I would encourage people to think about the idea of strip farming. And it doesn't necessarily have to be quite the strip farming of, of 80 years ago, but Arranging crops in, say, long, narrow strips of however many acres make sense for you versus 
quarter sections or full sections at a time can allow you to stagger crop types. So maybe you have, let's say, a long season crop, something like soybean in one strip next to a strip of something short season, and ideally maybe short season and high residue, so oats. And then in the next strip after that, you'd have pea. And so even though you're using tillage in this system, Let's say you swath those oats, but you leave that residue stand. If you're not going to do fall tillage, if you're only doing spring tillage, you have that strip there of oat residue to help protect against wind erosion. The soybeans are there later into the season, so that's not bare ground. And then if those peas, those peas probably come off in early August, something like that. So that would be, call it your high risk area that year. But if then there's a wheat or an oat strip or something on the other side of it, you're creating different residue scenarios across that area rather than just one large exposed field, which would be more prone to wind erosion. And so there are some very successful organic farmers who do strip cropping and contour cropping very intentionally. They modify their fields. They're modifying the shape of their fields and how they manage their crop rotation in respect to how those fields are oriented one next to another to provide those barriers against wind erosion or to catch snow. Well, I want to thank Dr. Claire Keen for sharing her experiences with us on the show here today. Intercropping, crop rotation, and organic are all themes that have drawn a lot of interest on this podcast in previous episodes, so it was really great to bring all three of them together into one show here today. If you're a subscriber to this podcast, and I sure hope you are, you're in for another fascinating episode coming up with Dr. Hector Carcamo. If you have a few insect pests on the crop, you actually can stimulate the plant because we have seen a bit of a response where you have a few insects on the plant and you actually get more yield compared to a plant that has no insects at all. So make sure you're subscribed to this show on your podcast platform of choice so you catch that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing two of these episodes per month all throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growing pulse crops and we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks